scriptures. We've been working through the minor prophets. Uh, on Sunday morning, started with Amos, went to Hosea, but we're taking a break, and, and I'm doing that at the encouragement, actually, of the session um, to talk about prayer and to share with you some of my reflections and thoughts um, about prayer, particularly as we have begun to use Sunday evenings um, as a kind of a designated place in the calendar, both to do some teaching about prayer, um, but also as um, as a place to pray, a time and a place to pray as a congregation. So um, I wanted to let you know, and we wanted to let you know what we're doing and to give you some of the rationale for why we're doing it. So uh, with that a little bit of introduction, I'll just say also that we're going to read Ephesians 6, but we're going to range a little bit more broadly than just Ephesians 6 as we think about uh, this matter of prayer in the life and ministry of the church. So let me invite you to stand now as we read together God's word. Please stand and turn with me to Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then this is the key thing. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, as we think about your word this morning, we again pray for your spirit. Um, we confess, Lord, I believe rightly, uh, that we need more than your word. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to make these words of yours live and to gain power and force and controlling influence in our lives. So, Lord, again, having read your word, knowing that it comes from you, being thankful for it, we ask you for your spirit as well, that we might understand it, and then we need your spirit, O oh Lord, to apply it. So please be with us as we consider it together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to take 
this time this morning and uh, just spend this time uh, talking about the centrality of prayer in the life and ministry of the church. Now, again, just a, just a general observation. If you look, and I did this this last week, it's a really good exercise. If you look, for example, at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, just just reading his letters in a sort of a cursory way, particularly the opening verses and paragraphs of each of his letters, it's remarkable how you see prayer woven into the fabric of who Paul is and what he does. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, you, You see Paul praying repeatedly, constantly praying. And you see him inviting people in Colossae and Ephesus and various other places themselves to pray, encouraging them to pray. Um, But if you think outside of the life of the Apostle Paul and the ministry of the Apostle Paul and you think of the life and ministry of Jesus, you see the same thing. I mean, you see in the text that we've read this morning, uh, Paul in this passage, beginning in verse 18, uses the word all four times. Pray all the time. Pray for all the saints with all prayer and all supplication. So it's, you know, it's central to his life. But if you look at the life of Jesus, you see it in the life of Jesus as well. If you look, for example, at Mark chapter 1 or at Luke chapter 5, verse 16... Uh, Jesus was in the habit of getting up early and departing to lonely places to to pray. In fact, Mark 1 is really stunning. And and frankly, it's very convicting. And I hate it because it's so convicting. Because I know what happens when I get busy. When I get busy, prayer disappears. But when Jesus got busy, when the ministry was flourishing, when people were imploring him to stay in their towns and villages, and when he was healing the sick and doing all of the works of mercy that he was doing, and when he was preaching and teaching, as he got busier and busier, he got up earlier and went off to pray. And I tell you, I hate that. My, my mornings are not pleasant. I'm, I'm better at 11 o'clock at night than I am at 11 o'clock in the morning. And the idea that as you get busier... You know, the pattern we said it this morning, Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's given us an example of a godly life. Well, you know, if a godly life means I've got to get up earlier as I get busier, I'm toast. Because my biorhythms are just kind of working differently from that. But the point is, whether you look at the life of Paul and the ministry of Paul, or you look at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, Prayer is inextricably woven into the fabric of who they are and what they do. And we know that. I mean, we know that we're, we're supposed to pray. Someone has said prayer, I don't remember who this was, someone has said prayer is the air that the Christian breathes. And we, you know, we say that kind of stuff, and, and we believe it at a certain level. What I want to encourage us this morning is that, is that we, as a church, that we, that we really, and I need this. I need this myself as a pastor. I need it as a Christian, but I need it as a pastor that I take much more seriously the central place of prayer in my life personally and in our life together as a congregation. And And that's what I want to encourage us about this morning. And as we think about prayer, 
Um, as we think about how it functioned, if you will, in the life of the Apostle Paul, or if we think about how it functioned, if you will, in the life of Jesus, I think that just about everything you could say about prayer can be gathered under two basic headings. Or you can understand prayer in a kind of a twofold context. And here are a couple of words. Again, just words that I hope will be helpful as you seek to remember these things and even think about them yourselves. Two words that are sort of headings or, or kind of a context in which to understand prayer. The first is relationship and the second is responsibility. Relationship to God, your Heavenly Father, and responsibility as citizens in the kingdom of King Jesus. Relationship and responsibility. And first, relationship. We start with relationship because that is where it starts. Uh, we, we confessed that already this morning. Um, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. I really do. When I was ordained, I asked if I received them and adopted them as representing the system of doctrine taught in the scriptures. I did then. I do now. And I love the Heidelberg Catechism. And I love it because it's so pastoral. Um, and I love questions and answers like what we have looked at already this morning. Why did Christ command us to call God our Father? That's what he did, you know. Um, that's what he did. When the disciples, look at Luke 1, I'll just have you note it. Look at Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 11, verses 1 and 2. When the disciples came to Jesus after Jesus had been praying, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth were the words, Our Father, or in Luke's Gospel, the one word, Father. But in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 6, the two words, Our Father. So here Jesus has himself been off praying, and the disciples see it, and perhaps they overheard his prayers. And when he was finished, they came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And the first thing that Jesus says is Father or our Father. Now that's a command. It has the force of a command coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He is commanding his disciples to address God in that way, as Father, as our Father. Now check this out sometime. As you read through your Old Testaments, try to find occasions in which God in the Old Testament is referred to as Father. They're there, but you have to dig around to find them. They are few. They are few. A couple of passages in Isaiah where God, through the prophet Isaiah, reminds Israel that he is their father. But they're infrequent. When you come to the New Testament, it's very different beginning with Jesus. Every time Jesus addresses God, he addresses him as father. Every time. And it's a startling and striking thing 
for Jewish disciples so immersed in the fabric of thinking from the Old Testament, understanding God to be holy and powerful, and who are so influenced by what they see when they go to the temple, where they see separations, whether literal physical separations, the various courts that separated people from the presence of God, or a priesthood, and even a high priest that stood between the people. It is so unimaginable for the disciples to think that it would be possible for them to experience the kind of intimacy with the Father that Jesus, God incarnate, God the Son, experienced. And yet Jesus commands the disciples to address God with that language of intimacy. And and many of you, I'm sure, know that the Aramaic word that is used in the text is a term of familiarity. It's not a formal term. It's a term of intimacy. It's a term that is laden with affection. Papa. Papa. Daddy. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of what it is to be a Christian. But God is not your boss. Not in the first instance. He is your Lord. He is the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of all things. He is not in the first instance your master. He is your master. You are his slaves. We've said repeatedly in this church, everybody is a slave to something. Nobody's free. We all want to think we are, but nobody is. Nobody is free. Everybody is a slave to something. And you are the slaves of Jesus Christ. The delightful thing, because frankly and ironically, in your slavery, you find what? Freedom. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. Free of threats, free of fears. Nothing to be afraid of. Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? I'm free. Yes, he is your master. Your master sets you free in a way that you never knew freedom before. But the first thing about you as a Christian is that you are a child. I don't know what it is you think of when you think of yourself as a Christian. I'm not inside your skin. And I'm not talking about the ideas that you have in your head. I'm talking about how you live your life moment by moment and day by day. And Jesus commands us in commanding us to address the God of heaven and earth. As Francis Schaeffer says, the infinite personal God who is really there. As the larger catechism says, God who is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I quote the answer to that question for you often because it so captures who and what God is. While God is all of those things, He is in the first instance for you as a Christian, your Papa, your Father. 
So how do we come to God? How do we think about prayer? Martin Luther said, and if someone knows where I can find this, I'd like to know where I can find the citation because I know he said it. Too many people have quoted him for me to believe that he didn't. Martin Luther is reputed to have said, if I could understand the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, I would understand the whole of Christianity. Our Father. Now let me remind you just in this context of what it is to have God as our Father, the infinite personal God who is really there, the one who is eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Let me remind you of something that we said a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at Hosea and as we were talking about the relentless love of God and the observation that I made about 1 John 4, 8, where John reminds his readers that God is love. And, and I struggled but tried to make this distinction between the fact that God is love within himself before he is loving toward things outside himself. Do you remember that? That God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and this is not too pedestrian or too common to say, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are infinitely and eternally in love with one another. That love exists in the Godhead before it is directed outward to other created objects. The Father loves the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Son loves the Father. And the Holy Spirit loves the Father in the Son and the Son and takes delight in the love that exists between the Father and the Son and among the members of the Godhead. And I suggest it to you, when you think about the love of God, try to think about it in this way. Try to imagine the moment in your life of deepest, greatest intimacy, joy, delight, whether with a spouse or with a child. I remember when my middle daughter was four years old, three, four years old, and, and, and we would do what, what parents, Christian parents, try to do. We'd pray with our children. We'd try to read some scripture, sing some songs with them. And then, of course, the child would have to go to sleep and we'd have to go do the dishes or whatever it is we'd have to do. And emblazoned in my mind's eye is a picture of me with my four-year-old daughter and her fingers locked together around my neck, not wanting me to leave. And me, happy to have those fingers locked around my neck because I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay there, locked in the embrace. And that memory is a joy to me. It's an image of pleasure and contentment and peace and complacency. What the prophet Zephaniah talks about as he refers to God, your king is a valiant warrior and he rejoices over you with love. 
He is complacent and at rest in his delight over you. And that's what I have emblazoned in my mind's eye as I think about that moment. Take that moment, any moment like it, and multiply it by infinity and spread it across eternity. And you begin to understand the sheer pleasure and delight and joy of the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Father and the Son. And you know what happens when you become a Christian? It actually antedates your becoming a Christian. But what happens when you become a Christian is that you get gathered up into that love. You get gathered up into the midst of that intimacy and joy and delight and fellowship. And not just as an observer, but as a participant. One who is loved in that way and one who by the grace of God increasingly learns to love that way. The same, this was the point, the same love with which the Father loves the Son, the same love with which the Son loves the Father is the love with which you are loved by the God of heaven and earth. Jesus said it, John 17, 23. You have loved them even as you love me. So how do I come to worship? How do I come to the Father? I come as a child. I come as one gathered up into the vortex of that love, into the dynamic of it, the freedom of it, the joy of it, the sheer pleasure of it. Now you sit there in those chairs and lean back against those chairs and you feel the breeze from the fans and you think, ah, oh, come on. I know where I'm sitting. I know who I am. I know who surrounds me. I know what life... You've got to be kidding. I am not kidding you. I am not trifling with the love of God. I am not trifling with the scriptures. I am telling you that is what it means to have God as your father that in Jesus Christ you are loved in that way with the same love that exists in the triune God. It is that love with which you are loved. And so that then becomes the basis for understanding the rest of Luke 11. If you read Luke 11, ask, keep asking, keep asking, keep going. Why may you ask? Why may you keep asking? Why may you keep seeking? Why may you keep on pursuing until you find? It's because God is your Father. And fathers don't give rocks to their children when their children ask for bread. And they don't give scorpions and serpents to their children when their children ask for fish. Out of the fullness of their love and wisdom, they give to their children. Do they always give what you ask for? Of course not. Of course not. Do you always give to your children what they ask for? Do you always allow your children to run out into the street and, and play tag team with garbage trucks as they pass by the house? You understand. 
It is out of the fullness of the love of God for his children that God gives. And so we may, we may be bold and we may be relentless and we may be absolutely free to ask and keep on asking to seek and to keep on seeking. That's the context for understanding Philippians 4, where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Why is it that I can be free of anxiety? Because my heavenly Father, who clothes the fields, who clothes and provides for the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air, that heavenly Father, who is so extraordinarily beautiful and provides so lavishly for his creation, he will do it for me. So I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be anxious. But in everything, with thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication, I can let my requests be made known to God. In everything, in everything. Go, keep going, ask, keep asking. Seek, keep seeking. Because of God and his love for you and because he is your heavenly father. So that's where prayer starts, but it doesn't stop there. You know, again, this is one of those examples of, of sort of being whipsawed, I guess. Of, of being radically bipolar. Here is, this, here is this image of incredible liberty and freedom and almost self-indulgence. But then here is this other and second thing. Prayer on the one hand expresses our relationship to God as Father and it also expresses our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom. And that's what you see reflected in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. What do you see reflected here? The reason I wanted to read the whole passage and have verses 18 through 20 in connection with the rest of the passage is because what you see in verses 10 through 17 is the reality of this conflict. Beloved, you are children and you are warriors. You are sons and daughters, and you are soldiers, and you are both. And when you get married to Jesus, when you become his sons and daughters, you get enlisted into his army. There is a conflict that is raging hot, both inside you and outside you. You are engaged in that conflict. You see God being realistic about the conflict in the first words spoken after the fall. I have some friends who tease, tease me. No matter where you start, Malone, you end up in Genesis. <laughs> and the reason you end up in Genesis is because the whole trajectory for understanding the nature of God and the nature of what is God is about and the nature of what we are about, it all gets started in the first three chapters of Genesis. And in Genesis 3.16, after God has made this incredible promise, or as he is making this incredible promise, that a champion is going to come, a warrior is going to come, he's going to vanquish the devil, He's going to overturn the evil one. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. The champion is going to come and he's going to crush the devil. He has said that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman, the seed of faith, 
and the seed of the serpent, the seed of unbelief. And down across the centuries of history, that conflict has been in evidence, and it is in evidence today. And when you became a Christian, you were not only gathered up into the vortex of the love of God, with God as your Father, God delighting in you as much as he delights in his Son, Jesus, but you were also gathered up into the conflict of which God, your heavenly Father, and over which he is Lord and King, and in the midst of which he is a commanding general. There is a conflict in which we are all engaged. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, Paul says. And in that context, he says, pray. And don't stop praying and pray for all the saints and pray with all prayer and all supplication as you pray at all times in the Spirit. Eric Alexander is a great Scottish preacher Uh, said at a mission conference, the church forgets that prayer is not supplemental, it is fundamental. And when we pray, we make a mistake when we say, let's pray for the ministry, because prayer is the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. I need to remember that. I need to remember that because I think my words are the ministry. I think preaching and teaching are the ministry. I think my words are going to change people's hearts. I think my words are going to make a difference in somebody's soul. I think my words are going to raise the dead and make them live and cause the deaf to hear and blind eyes to see. And my words are so many pennies pinging off a brass pot apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul implores the Ephesians to pray for him in the opening of his mouth. Because he's in the midst of a conflict. And apart from prayer, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the humble prayers of God's people, it's noise. It's noise. It's a dumb show. It is empty and powerless. John Piper has this great passage which captures this. Some of you have probably heard this read. You know this passage. It's in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. The second chapter is called The Supremacy of God in Missions Through Prayer. The supremacy of God in missions through prayer. And this is what he writes. Life is war. That's not all it is. But it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. 
it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Now, that is not to negate everything we've said about having God as our Father. It's not to negate it at all. You see what I mean about being radically bipolar and whipsawed between these extremes? But when we seek to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den exclusively, it malfunctions. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of being a limitless provider. The one who gives the power gets the glory. Thus, prayer safeguards the supremacy of God in missions while linking us with endless grace for every need. That's how prayer is supposed to work. And Paul seems to have understood that as he implored the Ephesians to pray for him, to pray for all the saints, to pray at all times in the power of the Spirit. So you think about this and you wonder, what what was Paul calling these people to pray for when he asked them to pray for all the saints? Who was he thinking of? Well, I don't know for sure, but I'll suggest, given the fact that Paul had been in Jerusalem and he had been in Antioch and he had been around Asia Minor and he had been over on the other side of the Aegean in southern Europe, Greece and Nicasia, I have to believe that Paul was imploring the Ephesians, to pray for the saints in Jerusalem, for the saints in Judea and Samaria, for the saints in Antioch and Colossae and North Africa and the rest of Asia Minor, and yes, even for the saints in Rome. I have to believe that Paul was calling upon these folks living in a specific place at a specific time to pray literally for people all over the world, people whom they did not know and would never meet and who apart from Christ they would have no interest in. And when he asks them to pray for him, he asks for them to pray, as I've already suggested, in the preaching of the gospel so that, verse 20, he might declare it boldly as he ought to declare it. So prayer. Really, anything we say about prayer, it seems to me, is gathered under these two headings, understanding it in the context of relationship to our Father and his great love for us, and understanding it as responsibility that falls to us as citizens of the kingdom. As citizens of the kingdom. So prayer is not supplemental, it's fundamental. We don't pray for the ministry, prayer is the ministry, and we're all summoned to participate in it. We're all called to participate in it. So here's, here's what we're doing on Sunday evenings, and I want to outline this very briefly and encourage you that if you are able, and, and the last thing in the world, honestly, this is, not, this is not about guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you into doing anything, okay? Your sons and daughters. Guilt can't touch you, okay? The cross gives you freedom. Even when you're foolish, when you fall, 
The cross gives you freedom. This is, I'm not trying to induce you to do something by guilt. I'm simply setting before you what I understand the scriptures to invite us to and want to encourage you if you're able to join us on Sunday evenings. So here's what we're going to do. The first Sunday of the month, we're going to come together as a family and we're going to take advantage of this invitation to indulge ourselves in our Father's presence and we're going to pray about our needs and concerns. We're going to pray for one another. The second Sunday of the month, we're going to look out beyond ourselves and our church. And we're going to pray for our Jerusalem, for Vero Beach and Sebastian and Indian River County. And we're going to pray for the ministries here in this county, for the Women's Refuge, for Youth for Christ, for CareNet, for The Source. We're going to pray for other churches. We're not the only folks in this town who love Jesus and love the gospel. We're going to pray for the gospel to flourish in this county through ministries of mercy and ministries of word and proclamation. And then the third Sunday of the month, we're going to pray for our Judea and Samaria. That's tonight. Tonight we're going to pray for our Presbytery. We're going to pray for the Presbyteries of the state of Florida in the Presbyterian Church in America. We're going to pray for our denomination. We're going to pray for specific ministries like Reformed University Fellowship. We're going to pray for church plants. We're going to pray for the nation. And then next week we're going to pray for the world on the fourth Sunday of the month. And missionaries and nations and places and people groups the need for us to be praying for them. That seems to me to be in keeping with what the scriptures show us about prayer. And so this is what we do. And, and I got to tell you this story as we bring this thing to a close. We're going to do this as merry men and women. We're going to do this as merry sons and daughters. Some of you know, not all of you do, but some of you know that one of my favorite metaphors for the church and for the gospel is the legend of Robin Hood. Robin Hood and his band of merry men and women. How can they be merry when the evil Prince John is on the throne, when the sheriff of Nottingham is running around oppressing and harming people, overtaxing them, brutalizing them? How can they be merry men and women in the midst of the conflict? You know how they can be merry. Because King Richard, the lion-hearted, is coming back. And when he comes back, he will put all things to rights. He will remove the evil Prince John from the throne. He will overturn the works of the Sheriff of Nottingham. He will vindicate his people and righteousness. And he will exalt himself as the rightful king and lord over Sherwood Forest. And the forest will know peace and blessing. And so in the midst of the conflict, we can engage in this business of prayer as merry sons and daughters of our great king, knowing that the day is coming when he will put all things to rights. God, help us to be a praying people in the midst of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we bow before you acknowledging that our faith is weak, our resolve is weak, and all of the rest, and, and yet 
You are our Father, and you've given us all things in Christ. So stir us up. Stir us up to come to you in faith, to look to you with affection even as you look at us and to us with eternal and infinite affection. And give us grace to come to you seeking from you those things that will enable us to be good soldiers in the midst of this fight until the day you return or you take us home to be with you. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.